Welcome to the First Baptist Church of Lavernia Sermon Podcast. If you have any questions about what you hear, or if you would like to speak with one of our pastors, you can find all of our contact information at www.fbclv.com. I read an article this week, and it asked the question, if you had to pick today what words you'd want to be written on your headstone, your tombstone, to describe you or your life that you lived well and finished well, what might those words be? And we think about, you know, funny things that people say or that they love. Like I could think uh, Chad's headstone might say, heaven is even better than bacon, right? Or Pastor Zach's might say, go Bengals. But if you had to really write something down and say, this is what I want on my headstone so that people know who I was, that I lived my life well, and then I finished well, I finished the race, and I made it all the way through, what would you want to be written on there? I found some examples this week of people who spent some time, I think, trying to decide what was the best way to either describe their life or to leave a lasting memory as people saw their headstone. And so here's one. <clears throat> one way, do not enter. So maybe that person was a traffic operator, and they go, this is a picture of my life, right? There's only one way you can come back in. Here's another one. Here lies Byron Vickers, died October 10th, 1887, second fastest draw in New Austin. You get it? He was the second fastest because the fast, forget it. Number three. Here lies John Yeast, pardon me for not rising. You know, because yeast... It rises. Number four, this is great. Raised four beautiful daughters with only one bathroom and still there was love. <laughs> Challenge accepted, right? Look what we did. And here's my favorite one. I told you I was sick. <laughs> Didn't nobody ever believe me saying I'm a hypochondriac. I told y'all something was wrong. And now look, you can be reminded every time you come to visit me. But seriously, these are funny, but what would you really want it to say? In this article, it said you have five words. Just five words that you can write to say, this is my life, I lived it well, and I finished well. What would you want those five words to be? Today is the conclusion of our Front Nine series, and we want to finish well. So we're going to look at chapters eight and nine today. We're going to cover a good bit of scripture. Is that okay if we read scripture in God's house today? Great, 17 people. Is it okay if we read the Bible and God's Word today? Yes. So we're going to study through it, so hang with me. We're going to get through these two chapters. We're going to see three decisions that we have to make if we are going to finish well as followers of Christ. Three decisions. If you're a note taker, here's our first point. Don't rush God's timing. I have been a hand washer before hand washing was cool. I went to two different places this week, public establishments, and I went in to wash my hands. The first is what I would call my worst nightmare. So when you walk in, the first thing I notice is the sink, and there's a big silver knob on the sink that says push. I hate those sinks with all of my being. It's the ones where you have to push it down, and water only comes out when you push it, and when you let off, all the water stops. And I get it, it makes sense. That way people don't leave the water running, people don't make a mess, I get it. But for someone who doesn't like germs, I don't like it. So you had to push the thing down to get the water, 
You had to push the thing for the soap. Then you had to push the thing to get the paper towels out. It's possible not to touch one of those things after you get washed, but it's very challenging, right? You got to push the paper towels. Then you got to hold down the paper towels. Then you got to, it's very, it's not fun. I don't like it. And worse is the end, they had a door that you had to grab the handle and pull it out, right? There's no way you're germ-free leaving this bathroom. It was the epitome of the valley of the shadow of death. That's not where I want to be. Went into a different restroom, and automatically I see that all the things are touch-free. This makes me very happy, right? Touch-free water, touch-free soap, touch-free air, touch-free paper towels, and the door had one of those foot things where you can open with your feet. This is good. This makes me very, very happy. So I get ready. I'm so I'm fixing to wash my hands, right? And so I am a rinse, lather, rinse kind of guy, right? So automatic sink. Put my hands under there. Nothing happens, right? I'm waving, nothing, figure eight, <laughs> nothing, hokey pokey, turn myself around, nothing, that's okay, peace in the valley, sink number two. <laughs> nothing, no worries, that's okay. Number three, there's only three sinks, this is it, Nothing. No water would come out of any of those things. And what frustrates somebody about that, as sure as happened to you too, is you go, I love this automatic no touch until it don't work no more. And when it don't work, this is no help to anybody. And it's so frustrating because this is the way it's supposed to work. Put your hands under the sink water comes out. We know this, we've experienced this, we've done this before, but when it doesn't work the way it's supposed to, we get frustrated. And that's the same thing about life. We have this belief or this idea about how things are supposed to work and how much time it's supposed to take and when and where it's supposed to happen. And then when it doesn't, we get frustrated and we get upset and we get impatient. We start going, what is taking so long? I'm in the bathroom. It's a no-touch faucet. Put your hands underneath. Water's supposed to come out. When it doesn't, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And that's how we feel about life sometimes. This isn't the way it was supposed to happen. And this wasn't supposed to take so long. And it surely wasn't supposed to be this hard. So last week we had our Disciple Now weekend. So thankful for Pastor Zach, his leadership, all of our teachers, our college leaders, our speaker, our band, our host homes, everybody made the weekend just a complete wonderful blessing and success. Week before, we saw Noah. He and his family had gotten into the ark, and God had closed them in. They'd been protected. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. The waters came from the earth and from the sky, and then the waters stayed upon the earth for 150 days. And what we see next is that this family had to trust in God's timing. Genesis chapter 8, we'll start in verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. But God remembered. Now, in this room, we will have very differing opinions and levels of memory. Some of you will say, I have no memory. Short-term, long-term, it's just not good all the way around. Other people might say, my short-term's great. What happened yesterday, what happened today, I'm with you, I can tell you. But if past a year or five years, it's all gone, I can't remember. 
Some of the rest of y'all say, I have no idea what I had for breakfast today. I don't know what I did yesterday. But if you need to know a statistic about a football player from 1978, I got you. If you need to know what my third grade teacher's name and social security number is, I'm there. If you need me to tell you what my theme, my birthday party was when I was 11 years old, I can do all those things. And when we think about remembering, we think about recalling information. I need to remember my password. I gotta remember to turn the oven off. I gotta remember to call that person back. God doesn't need to remember things because God can't forget things. So this word here doesn't mean to recall information. This is not a picture that God is up in glory and he's really busy because he's been working on the perfect Rice Krispie recipe. And he's trying to figure out the right balance of butter and the marshmallows, and he really wants to include Reese's peanut butter eggs because they are from glory. And so he's mixing these things together, and he's so consumed. And when those things are cooking, he's really trying to get up his levels and scores on Rocket League. So he's playing a lot of that over here. He's making Rice Krispies, and God is super busy. And then all of a sudden, Genesis 8 tells us, God remembers that there's a flood going on. He goes, oh, yeah, I forgot about the flood and all that water. And there's something else, too. Noah, there's Noah, and he's on that boat. I totally forgot about them. I better go and check in. God doesn't forget things, so God doesn't need to remember to recall. God knows all that was, is, and will be. So instead, this word remember means it's a call to action. It's a promise fulfilled. And so he sends the wind, and the waters begin to recede. Verse two. The foundations of the deep and the windows of heaven were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. And the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So the waters begin to recede. This isn't like your bathtubs will pull a plug and you're done in a few seconds. The whole earth was flooded 17,000 feet above sea level. So the Lord could have evaporated it immediately, but instead he lets nature work its way and it begins to recede 150 days it takes. The ark sits upon the top of Mount Ararat. The rain has stopped. The waters are receding. The ark has touched land and at this moment, I can only imagine the people inside are going, this has got to be it, right? I'm standing in the bathroom. My hands are under the sink. We're almost out of here. Surely we're almost finished, and the water's going to come out of the faucet at any moment because this has to be God's timing. The rain has stopped. We've been waiting forever to get off of this ark, and now we finally touched land. Ahoy, we are ready. Get us off of this boat. Verse 6. At the end of 40 days... Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made. He sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and he took her and he brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. The dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf, sign of peace. So Noah knew that the waters have subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. 
150 days it took for the water to recede. And then it says Noah waited 40 days that he begins to send out these birds. Ravens are ravenous. They will eat and live and survive on anything. So that bird goes out first, goes to and fro. Waits, he sends out a dove. A dove is a much more clean animal, much more specific in particular. Goes out, can't find something, it comes back. He waits seven more days, and then he sends it out again. It finds a branch, comes back, waits seven more days, sends out the dove, and it doesn't return. We gotta set this scene here and understand they have been on this ark that what I'm sure would feel like forever. They're gonna be on this boat for almost a year before it's said and done. But 40 days, right, it rains from the night and day, from the ceiling and from the bottom. 150 days, there's water. They're still on the boat. 150 days it takes for the water to go down. And then Noah waits 40 more days. I can't imagine, and we don't read this, but the people inside have gotta be saying, we've been on here for an eternity, we are tired of being on stock. We're thankful for God and we're thankful for his protection, but we want to get off. We want to put our feet in the dirt. It stinks in here really bad. I went to the rodeo a few weeks ago. I walked through the show barn. I caught the whiff. And in my heart, I go, it was worse. It was worse on the ark forever. Surely their impatience is growing, going, this has got to be the time the water's got to be coming out of the faucet because this is surely what God's plan looks like and this has got to be God's timing. The rains have stopped. The waters are going down. We're on top of the mountain. Surely he wants us and then we have a 40 days. Then we have a bird. Then we have seven days. Then we have a bird. Then we have seven days. Then we have a bird. And these days get in. You go, it's only seven days. Can you imagine you've been working for a year? Seven days a week, 12 hours a day. Some of you go, that's exactly what I've been doing. And it's finally time for you to have a month off. And boss calls and says, hey, we just need you to work seven more days. Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine spending a year in the hospital? Finally, it's the day to get out. The doctor comes in and says, ah, we think we want you to stay seven more days. Students in May, supposed to be the last day of school, they come over to the leader speaker and they say, hey, we changed our mind. We want you all to go to school for seven more days. Revolt! Seven more days? We've already been on here forever. Surely it's got to be time for us to get off of this floating box. Seven days would feel like an eternity, and yet we see them patient. Verse 13. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons, your son and wife with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. We have years and we have dates. We have specifics. This lets us know this is not a fairy tale. This is actual, historical, factual information. Noah removes the cover and God says, now's the time for you to leave the ark. I can only imagine there was some ground kissing going on when they walked off that boat. Oh, Lord, thank you for the dirt and the grass, 
and just not be on that floating box anymore, but have our feet on the solid ground once again. Be fruitful, multiply. What I see here is such a faith journey. Remember, it was 50 to 100 years that Noah took building the ark before the flood ever came. And then a week before the rains, he got on the ark with his family because God told them to and shut them in. Then it was 40 days and 40 nights of rain, 150 days of the water staying, another 150 days of the waters going down, another 40 days Noah waited, and then the seven days burned, seven days burned, seven days burned. And out of all this time, we never see once that he questions God's timing. We never see one discussion where Noah says, Lord, my hands are in front of the faucet. When I put my hands there, the water is supposed to come out, and it's not. We never hear him say, Lord, the rain has stopped. Why are we still here? Lord, the waters have receded. What are we doing? Lord, we're on the mountain. Can't we just get off and put our foot on one little corner? We've been in here forever, it feels like. What we see is only obedience without hesitation, and he never questions God's timing. The Lord probably will not call you to live on an ark for a year. But what is your ark today? What is that you feel like you've been trapped in, stuck on, that you need to let go of or move to? What is it that you feel like you keep crying to God going, surely this is the time my hands are under the faucet, but why isn't the water coming out and you've become impatient and you're trying to rush God's timing? Is it a job, a relationship, a decision? Is it something that you've told God that you would or you would not do? And you say, God, I just want to be released. And God says, it's not time. What is the ark that you feel like you are stuck in and God's timing is off? And he just wants to remind you that his timing is always perfect. The lesson here is not that when you need to test the waters, you go by a raven or you go by a dove and send them out to see what they see. The lesson here is that when you don't know what to do next, you trust God's timing by doing what you know is right. You keep loving God, you keep serving, you're faithful, you're obedient, you keep studying scripture, you keep praying, you keep helping others. Do all the things you know that are right and be patient and trust that God's timing is perfect. Number two, don't forget God's promises, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and he offered the burnt offerings to the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, in Texas the same day, day and night, they shall not cease. Notice here the first act of Noah. Finally, after a year, he's getting off the ark. What's the very first thing that he does? He worships. And can you imagine what a change we would see in our life, in our families, in our church, in our world, if the very first thing that we always respond with is worship? So when God delivers you, you worship and when God heals you, you worship. And when God answers your prayer, you worship. And when God does a miracle, you worship. But what about when you feel anxious, you worship? And what about when you lose your job, you worship? And when you get sick, you worship? And when you're depressed, you worship? And when you're overcome with fear, 
you worship? What change would we see if our first reaction was worship, no matter what we walk through in this life? The offering pleased the Lord. He makes this covenant promise. Never again will I flood the earth. Never again will I put to end all living creatures. Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. God blesses Noah, and he blesses his sons. And we see the same parallel picture when Adam is in the garden. He says, you have dominion over all these things, all the animals and all the plants. You're in charge. And now in this new world, we have Noah and his sons. He says, you're in charge. You have dominion over all these things. And this is the moment in Scripture, don't miss this, that man is introduced to ribeye steaks, fried chicken, ribs, fish sticks, and hamburgers. This is the moment. He says, all the animals are good for you to eat. Carnivores unite. And he says, in the same way that I give you all the green vegetables that are good for you, I give you all the meats from the animals. Verse four. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by the man his blood shall be shed. For God made man his image, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply. The lifeblood belongs to the Lord. There's no government. There's no police officers. There's no authority here besides God Almighty. It's Noah and his kids. So he says there's going to be accountability for lives that are taken that are made in the image of God. Know this. You'll be held accountable. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I made between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, and all future generations. I have set a bow, rainbow, in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you, and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The covenant is a binding agreement between two parties. He says, this is the sign of the covenant. Never again will I flood the earth. Never again will I put an end to all things that breathe. He goes, and so when you see the rainbow in the sky, <clears throat> this is a reminder to you of this promise that I have made. And God has kept that promise. And God keeps every promise. And so maybe today what you need to hear is the encouraging word of hope that every promise that God has ever made to you, he has kept. Promises about your salvation, protection, your hope, new life, eternity, comfort. Promises to take away your burden if you bring it to him. 
promises to work out everything for good for those who love him, promises to supply your every need, promises to be with and to help those who are weary. So maybe today God just needs you to hear and know that he has made you promises and he has never broke those and he never will. Or maybe he wants to draw your attention or your conviction to the promises that you have made to him but that you have not kept. Promises about your purity, your righteousness, devotion, sacrifice, giving, serving, your future, your relationships, your quiet time, your Bible reading, your habits. Promises you have made, but then so easily have broken. And God wants you to be exposed today to be convicted of those, to finish and to live well. We have to trust and not rush God's timing. And we have to know that God keeps his promises. And we have to keep our promises to him. Number three, don't spoil God's blessings. I saw this video a few weeks ago that shows a picture of how we often respond when God delivers us from hard or terrible situations that we are in. It looks something like this. What are you doing? Come on. And that picture, that's us, right? God delivers and saves us, and woo-hoo-hoo, and God pulls us out, woo-hoo-hoo, what are you doing? I firmly believe with all of my heart that God is a good father, and he wants to bless his children. But I think that so many times, we are not in that place to receive his blessing, and we spoil that opportunity because we choose to live in sin and in disobedience. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed, right? Fresh start, new beginning. Noah, his family, sons and wives. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, gardener, like Adam. He planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Well, things just took a very drastic turn for the worse here. He's been on the ark for a year, right, waiting and thanking God for his worship and his protection, and then now they're on this new earth, and I'm sure everything is incredible, and he becomes a man of the soil, becomes a gardener. That's a good thing to do. And then he begins to grow these vineyards, and he makes some wine, and since it's homemade wine, I'm gonna call it wine shine, so he makes the wine shine, he drinks too much wine shine, and then he is laying naked, uncovered in his tent. Here's what happens. There's three things I think we have to notice just about these first verses right here. We see this pattern in Noah and we see it in Adam, that God gave them absolutely everything that they need and yet they still choose sin. Adam is in the garden, perfect. Everything he needs, he chooses sin. Noah, in a newly created world, he was the one who was righteous and blameless and walked with God, and yet he still chose sin. And we see this pattern in our own lives, that God gives us all that we need, and yet somehow our sinful nature still leads us down the path that we don't want to go. In this situation, we see Noah's drunkenness, and we see him have no fingers to blame. 
He's the one who planted the vineyard. He's the one who grew the grapes. He's the one who maybe smashed them with his feet. He made the wine shine. He drank the wine shine. He got drunk, and then he did something he never would have done, and he brought shame upon himself. Hear this clearly. Drunkenness is and was a sin, and we don't treat it that way. So in the fall, we're going to do a series called Acceptable Sins. Drunkenness is an acceptable sin. When we talk about people who get inebriated and get drunk, we don't talk about it bad. We talk about, go, oh, that was funny. Did you see them? And we laugh and we joke about him. Drunkenness led Noah to do something he never should have done and God would not want him to do. Drunkenness still leads you to do things that you never should have done and would never want to do. If you don't believe that's true, we can have open mic and we can have people come down and give testimony today of things they have done while they were drunk that they would not have done otherwise, and we would be here all day long. Hear me clearly. Drunkenness was and is a sin because you do things when you are drunken that you know better and that you should not do. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside, then Sham and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders. They walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So strange. So Noah drank the wine shine. He got drunk. God did not want him to do that. He's laying naked over there in his tent. Ham sees his dad naked in this tent, and we don't know if he did something or if there was some kind of encounter, but he thinks it's funny. He wants to make fun of him. Maybe he has a jealousy of his dad because everybody thinks Noah is perfect and he's righteous and he's blameless, but he finally caught him, and he caught him in the act, and he's going to embarrass him in front of the family. So he goes to get his two brothers and say, look at our foolish dad. And they don't think it's funny, and they don't want to dishonor their dad. So they get this blanket. They walk backwards. They don't see him. They cover him up with the blanket. And then Noah wakes up, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine shine, and he knew that his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah wakes up, and we don't know how he knows what happened. It doesn't say Noah woke up and God revealed to him, this is what done did happen to you because you drank the wine shine, or if somebody came and told him what happened to him. But he wakes up, and he is mad, and his son has dishonored him. This is what Ham did, but Noah curses Canaan. Canaan is Ham's son. So why did Noah curse Canaan? Ham, why did he curse Canaan? We don't know. It could be that maybe Canaan had some part in this process of making fun of Noah. It could be because Scripture says the sins of the father cannot land on the son, so they went to the grandson. It could be that this is just a signal or a prophecy or a curse that just says this lineage of Ham to Canaan is going to be cursed from this day forward because of the sins that has been done. But what we see is that Noah curses those who have done him wrong, and then he blesses those who did him right, and then he lived 350 years. He was 950 when he died. Noah, who walked with God, 
the only man on the whole planet that God saw fit to save with his family, the only one righteous and blameless, has now found himself in a place of sinfulness. Adam, God's first man created in his own image, living in a place of perfection, fell to sin. What a great reminder for us that sin crouches at the door. Even in the most perfect of places and situations, there is temptation, and there is sin, and there is folly, and there is foolishness. And so we must keep watch, and we must be careful. What a great reminder that our personal sins don't just affect us, but they can affect our sons and daughters, our husbands and wives, our families, because our sphere of influence reaches much further and there's somebody always watching what we are doing. D.L. Moody was one of the greatest evangelists of all time. He was speaking at a six-series event that was on Sunday nights. The first four Sunday nights, he talked about Jesus from the manger and worked his way up until the arrest. On the fifth Sunday night, he said it was going to be the greatest crowd he'd ever spoken to size-wise. It was just gonna be humongous. This was in 1871. And on this evening, the title of the sermon was, What Will You Do With Jesus the Christ? And he says that he made one of the greatest mistakes of his entire ministry on that evening by closing the service with this. I wish you would take this text home and with you and take it home with you and turn it over in your minds and during the week, think about it. And then next Sunday, we're gonna come back and we'll come to Calvary and the cross, and then you can decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. So he ends his fifth session by saying, come back next week. Think about these verses and think about who Jesus is. And then next Sunday, we'll come to Calvary and you can make a decision about what you want to do with Jesus. As it began to close, a fire bell rang. The meeting was dismissed, and this was the beginning of the great Chicago fire. For the next 27 hours, 300 people died. 90,000 people were left homeless. He never got to finish the sermon. They never had that sixth meeting. 22 years later, in 1893, he said this. I learned a lesson that night, which I have never forgotten, and that is, when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there, I try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I would rather have my right hand cut off than to give an audience a week to decide what to do with Jesus. Never in a million years did he think they wouldn't have that next meeting. So just think about it for a week. And then next week, we'll make a decision. Don't wait until next week to make a decision today. And don't wait until tomorrow, because there may not be a tomorrow. To live and finish well, choose today that you are not going to rush God's timing. He's never been late. He's never been early. He's always right on time, but you have to trust the process and you have to walk in obedience. Don't forget God's promises. He has not left you. He has not forsaken you. He is still your hope. He is still your guide. Don't forget that. Don't spoil God's blessings. To live and to enjoy his presence and his favor, to get a little taste of what heaven's gonna be like, we have to live every day for him. 
do all that he asks without hesitation and in faith so we can finish well.